we are in a series called uh, Family Circus. And we've looked at all these dynamics within the family from marriage to parenting, grandparenting. Uh, in fact, last week, Pastor Kurt spoke on parenting and I thought he just did a fantastic job. Can we show him some love? And it, it was amazing. If you are a parent and you missed that message, you should check it out. I am amazed by what our family ministries department continues to do to resource families and to set them up for success. And it was great. And as we were laying out this series, uh, we decided to slate two weeks dedicated to the parenting conversation. And so next week, uh, we have a guest speaker by the name of Jonathan Brozog. Him and his wife have eight children. Uh, so they have some experience on the topic. And they wrote a book called Raising Parents. And I'm just convinced uh, it would be worth your time to show up next week and to hear this conversation. Uh, but today's message is uh, more related to us as a church family and uh, the church at large, globally and even nationally. Uh, I find that if, as you survey the landscape of the local church around the world, uh, over the last few years, it too has been a bit of a circus. And I think we all can relate to this, even though we don't want to admit it. Uh, there have been things that we have witnessed in the church, things done by leaders that were disappointing and discouraging and errors that were made and decisions and behaviors that just came with a black eye for the local church. And, and we've watched as congregations and members of the church have acted in ways that we just found to be appalling and disruptive and uh, even disappointing. And at times it's, it's hard to sit back and, and see some of the things that take place in the community of faith. And I just believe uh, as a church, if we're gonna be a healthy, vibrant, thriving church, uh, we shouldn't avoid uh, tough conversations and we should just lean into the reality of, of what we're facing. And the, the church at large is in a very difficult season. And sometimes we need to be reminded that what we consider to be normal uh, is just not normal. Uh, for one, the average church in America, over 80% of churches uh, are under 200 people. Uh, so this context in which we worship in is very unique and rare. Uh, in addition to that, uh, prior to COVID, up through 2019, in America, we were closing 200 churches a week. Get your mind around that. 10,000 churches a year were closing their doors. And so what you are finding as our nation uh, moves away from uh, Christian values and finding its uh, anchor in God, what you're, you're seeing is a secularization taking place in our culture and the damaging effects uh, are taking place within the local church. These are just things that uh, as a community, we ought to be mindful of. I recently read a study that said uh, over 50% of the participants in this study, 50% uh, of millennial pastors indicated that they will be stepping out of the ministry over the next year. And what's alarming about that is we are in a season where uh, the baby boomers are also now retiring from the ministry. And so we are facing as a church at large uh, a pretty cataclysmic moment in which there's going to be a major deficit within the workforce, within the ministry. And what was so heartbreaking to me about this study is the number one reason why individuals indicated why they were stepping out of the ministry is they said because of political and social issues creating so much division within the church, it's become a hostile environment to work in. And so individuals are stepping out of it. And I, I just, I think... Uh, problems are opportunities. 
And, and I think when stuff like this arises, as people of faith, we ought to look at it and not run from it, but lean into it with uh, a mind of faith that says, God, is there uh, any way that you would wanna do something special in our church family? And is there anything that you would do to maybe position us to be an example? and to raise the bar and to set the standard and to have influence at large within the body of Christ also that we can be the church you had in mind. And that is where this conversation is gonna go as to what can we as a church family do uh, in light of the things that are taking place within our world and affecting the local church. Krista and I often joke, but there's some seriousness to it where we say uh, we feel like we're coming from the future. Someone just broke a bottle. <laughs> now it's a real party at all of our campuses. Carmel folks are getting crunk in this place. Uh, and uh, I think there's a whole ludicrous song that goes with that. You see, you gotta put a secular reference in there to see who the real ones are, right? Oh, uh, broken people, broken people, broken people. And, uh, and Chris and I will say, and we come from the future. And what we mean by that is, uh, where the context we're coming out of in Minnesota, there were things on the doorstep of the local church that were so much more prevalent and forceful and even uh, discouraging and damaging. Uh, things taking place within our culture uh, that currently right now in our community, and I'm super thankful and I appreciate this, uh, they just haven't made their way to the doorstep of our community. Uh, but in Minnesota, we had this statement where we would say the snow always melts around the edges first, and then it makes its way to the middle. And I think we would be foolish as a community of faith not to assume that the things taking place within our culture are making their way to our backyard. And how do we as a community of faith uh, prepare ourselves uh, for the turbulent times in which we live in? And scripture says, a wise man sees a storm coming, and makes preparations. That's what scripture says. And folks, the next, teen, uh, next 18 months as we head into another uh, political year, it, it's going to come with some turbulence. And we ought to just prepare ourselves spiritually and mentally for the challenges that may come to the doorstep of the local church. And we might as well commit now proactively how we're going to operate as things continue to get bumpy in our culture, amen? And as we tease this out, there's one theological concept that I kind of want to really slowly unpack today, and, and it'll all tie together as we jump into it. And my question for you is, in terms of your theology, your personal faith, your belief system, uh, what is the, the one theological concept that you are currently wrestling with? What's that one area in your faith that you're, you're curious about? You're doing a deeper dive, you're, you're intrigued and you're, you're mesmerized by its mystery or you're kind of throwing yourself into the, the wrestling match with God trying to figure this out. And I would say, if you're not wrestling with something in your faith, there's a good chance you're becoming idle in your faith. And a car in neutral only drifts to its lowest point. And so it's learning to be engaged and it's okay to wrestle things out in your faith. There's a healthy tension to this deal. And something that I have found myself over the last few years kind of wrestling and realizing that I have not always had the right understanding of. Uh, something that I didn't have an accurate um, understanding and that also then resulted in an inaccurate application in my own life and then how I would lead. And that is this idea of glory. Look at your neighbor and say glory. 
I was told by a mentor early on, and I would still endorse this way or this advice, but he said, hey, if you wanna live above reproach and you wanna safeguard your ministry and your marriage and you want to uh, continue to invite more of God's favor upon your ministry and leadership, you need to avoid three things. You need to stay away from the gold, the glory, and the girls. And if you can safeguard your calling in those three areas, uh, you will continue to invite more of God's favor. And I would endorse that, but what I think I've realized in my life is how the world defines glory. And in that moment, how my mentor was defining glory uh, is very different than how scripture defines glory. In fact, scripture speaks a great deal about this idea of glory and our responsibility, our call to live into it. And so this is gonna be teachy, this is gonna be theological, uh, but I do believe if you lean in and you give me the next 30 minutes, uh, it might serve you well in your life with Christ, amen? And so if you look at scripture, Watch what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul says, now the Lord is the spirit. If you're new to the Christian faith, we believe in one God amongst three persons, the Holy Trinity. It's fascinating, not frustrating. Uh, I don't have all the time to unpack it, but there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was sent from the Father to earth, right? He paid the ultimate price, died on a cross for our behalf. And then moments after he resurrected, he ascended to heaven. And prior to doing so, he said, hey, this is good news that I'm leaving you because as I go, I am sending the Spirit. What Paul wants us to understand is the, the two are one. Jesus as Lord and the Spirit, these are in union together. So the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Come on, church, can I get an amen? I mean, that is such a treasure. That is such a great promise and benefit to our faith. And some of you, maybe you're not a Christian and maybe you've tried to navigate life alone and it comes with regret and pain and shame and guilt and discouragement and anxiety and all the different tormenting things. And you should just know that this life in Christ comes with a supernatural freedom that's really remarkable. Now watch what he ties freedom to. And there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face uh, beholding the glory. So again, I was kind of endorsing and I had anchored myself to this idea that you have to avoid glory. Well, here scripture says glory is something we should behold, that we are to be carriers of glory of the Lord. He goes on to tell us this, because we are being transformed into the same image, which is Jesus. We're being transformed into his image and likeliness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So this is super fascinating. But essentially what it is saying is how the world is defining glory and how God is defining glory to radically different things. And God's idea of glory is something that we should uh, be carriers of. And we all anchored to Christ are living a glory story. Essentially, we move from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory. It's a glory story. Now, this is all gonna tie together, but what you find here are two themes and they're swimming in the same stream. You find freedom and you find glory and the two are traveling together. And this is, this is really important to keep in your theological tool belt if you're gonna follow Christ or if you're curious as to how does God choose to operate in your life. Your journey of faith breaks down into three stages. And the first stage is salvation. And again, freedom is a key component. And that is freedom from the penalty of sin. 
That every single one of us, we, we come up short. Every single one of us has errors in our life and you don't have to hold on to your shame because God's not holding out on his grace. And Jesus stepped into our shoes and died a vicious death also that you and I can now live a victorious life. And on the cross, he served as humanity's sponge in which he absorbed every ounce of God's wrath on your behalf and on my behalf. And now we are freed from the penalty of sin. That's such a great gift. And salvation happens in a moment. Salvation is saying, hey, I recognize I'm a sinner in need of God's grace and Jesus Christ is the only one who can provide it. And I am anchoring my life to him and receiving him as Lord and Savior. That's how salvation takes place. And that then triggers the next stage, which is sanctification, which is freedom from the power of sin. See, what happens is, and you've discovered this, that you give your life to Christ and heaven doesn't wave a wand over your life. You don't wake up the next day a perfect individual. You wake up the next day still with some tendencies and still with some things in your character that God needs to flush out. And God is not really concerned with the speed of your growth as much as he is concerned with the strength of your growth. And where salvation happens in a moment, sanctification uh, will take the rest of your life. And so it's just learning to engage in that journey. And what happens is over time, Uh, the things that used to entangle you, the things that used to come with a great deal of temptation and influence, suddenly they lose their power in your life. You are being freed from the influence and the power of sinful things. And ultimately the final stage in all of this is glorification. Again, glory and freedom, they're, they're moving together in the same stream. And the ultimate end result is freedom from the presence of sin that we are all moving to something. So again, let's keep it together. If we are in Christ, you are living a glory story from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory, that you are a carrier of glory because you are taking on the image and the likeliness of Christ who is the fullness of glory, okay? And we are all living in the direction of a destination which we are going to experience the theological doctrine of glorification, where it will be the fullness of God's perfect and pleasing plan and his fullness of his glory. And heaven uh, will come without any evil or wickedness, pain, sorrow, grief, illness, uh, and it will be perfect and we will see the full glory of God. Now, when it comes to glory, there is kind of three dimensions to this idea of what scripture would call glory. And this is where we find the distinction between God's understanding of it and our own. And that is this. First, there is the praiseworthiness of glory, right? It's, it's marveling at the majestic beauty and splendor of God that he is praiseworthy. Uh, but what does Romans chapter three, verse 23 say? It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what that means is glory is not just this praiseworthy activity. Uh, Glory is also principled. That the glory of God is ethical. It's moral. It's righteous. It's holy. For all have sinned coming up short in the ethical standards of God and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a moral, ethical component to God's glory. But the, the really the big factor in God's glory is the person of glory. And that person has a name. And what's his name, folks? 
Jesus, absolutely. Jesus is the fullness of glory. And this is where we would get the doctrine incarnation. Someone say incarnation. So to understand the difference between how the world thinks and how God thinks, you have to know that there's a difference between incarnation and affirmation. Now, if you're looking for something to do a deep dive into in your faith, the incarnation is fascinating. It is a beautiful theological concept that is critical to our faith. And essentially what the incarnation means is God took on human flesh and he became like us. So Jesus was fully God, don't miss this, and fully man, fully God and fully man, which makes that beautiful because his deity means he can save us, but his humanity means he understands us. Come on, somebody. Anyone thankful for a God who not only can save us, but he understands us? That he stepped into our shoes, born of a virgin, lived an infant life, raised in poverty by two teenage parents in a remote time of history in an undeveloped village, and he faced all the circumstances, challenges that many of us face, and he conquered uh, the brokenness of this world. And he took on bodily form. If you want to make it cute and witty so you can remember it incarnation simply means god in a bod yeah that'll work god in a bod Uh, but this is a weighty concept and you don't want to just dilute it because it's it's scandalous that our god in his courageous belief in people left perfection left heaven and came to brokenness and joined earth and He came believing that people, you and I, were worth saving. And so the incarnation is affirmed in scripture. In one point, John chapter one, and it says the word, talking about Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, here it is, his glory. Again, this is a key component. As of the only son from the father, check this out, full of grace and truth. See, what happens is right now in the world is as we look around culture, we find that Christians are starting to take their cues from the world, not the word. And this is a huge miss anytime you and I start patterning ourselves after the world, not the word. And what we do is we become divisive in nature the same way our world is divisive. And so it says Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. The problem is you find communities of faith separating the two. And so you have one creating, hey, we're the grace camp. And you have another saying, hey, we're the truth camp. But just know if you separate truth from grace, you miss it. And I would say it this way. Grace without truth is spineless. But truth without grace is heartless. And so it is learning to say, all right, this gives us a layer of clarity. God in a bod, he dwelt among us. He took on humanly flesh. We are being molded and transformed into his glory, his image and likeliness. And John wants us to know first and foremost, to be like Christ, you have to operate full of grace and full of truth. The incarnation, I'm telling you, is, is I believe the key in much of what we're facing in our world and where I believe the community of faith 
has a moment to have tremendous influence and lead by example in a culture that really needs it. But you have to understand the incarnation. And it makes me think of my kids. I tend to be very futuristic in my thinking. And uh, recently I was uh, just thinking about what kind of grandparents my kids are gonna become. Anyone ever thought that? No, I'm the only one. I, I love being weird and on an island. Hi, I'm, I'm your pastor. I, uh, I don't know why, but I, I found myself just thinking like, man, what, what kind of grandparents are they gonna be? So much so I went and journaled about it. And I, like, for me, I, I'm convinced I know exactly which type of grandparents they're gonna be. Riley is going to be that crazy grandma. She's gonna be feisty and you know, just wild and spontaneous and sporadic. And she's gonna get the kids out of school and she's gonna let them eat ice cream every day. And she's not gonna have a filter, but because she's charming, everyone's gonna give her grace. She's gonna be nuts. And that's gonna be the time of grandma she is. Cannon is gonna be that grandfather who's gonna stay the night in the waiting room every time one of his grandchildren is born. He's gonna sign up to chaperone every field trip and he's gonna answer the call every time one of them calls in the middle of the night and he's gonna pray with them and encourage them because he's the most tender-hearted guy you'll ever meet. Miles is gonna get a lot of his grandchildren hurt. His grandkids are gonna have all the broken bones and all the concussions because he's gonna put them on dirt bikes and four wheelers and snowmobiles without helmets before they should be able to drive it and they're gonna crash, but they're gonna think Grandpa Miles is awesome. And Grandma Presley uh, is gonna be the grandma who has all the good recipes and homegirl can shop. And everyone's gonna wanna shop with Presley because she is the biggest spender in our home at the age of five. <laughs> they're gonna love Grandma Presley. I was really thinking about this though, because uh, my favorite thing to do is to have faith conversations with my kids. I mean, it's, there's not even a close comparison. It's the number one thing I enjoy doing. And right now I, I feel so blessed because we have a 30 minute commute uh, to our kids' school and it's right down the street from my office. So I get to do drop off every single day. It's the best thing in the world. And every single day we, we talk about scripture and uh, we have fascinating and very comical conversations about where they're at theologically. And right now in our household, we have a Calvinist, a charismatic, a Lutheran and a seeker, one who's still trying to figure out where they're at in their faith. And, uh, but it's, it's so fun. And I was thinking to myself, I'm not uh, going to always be able to have these conversations with them. That's just the nature of life. At some point I'm not around in their life and who knows when that time will be. And I don't wanna procrastinate on that. And I wanna pass on to them the faith of their father. And I would love to believe that at some point as grandparents, they will be teaching their grandchildren, hey, this was the faith of my father. And so I decided to write them a theology book. And I called it, The Way We Speak, An Introduction to Christian Language. And uh, even designed a cover with Jesus at the center of our dialogue. And there may only ever be four copies of this ever published because I, I wrote it for my kids. And in it, uh, what I wanted to do and where I'm really concerned about our world is we are redefining very fundamental things. And, and guys, this is, it's tearing at the fabric of our society. And it's, it's really problematic. And we are uh, redefining basic language. And so there are words that I would bet my life on that I want to articulate, hey, this is your dad's belief system. And uh, 
who knows, generations from now, uh, I would fear the next generation not knowing what this faith movement was built upon and what we believed. And so I took the top 20 words that have shaped my belief system from Trinity to sovereignty to atonement to revelation to incarnation to Pentecost to resurrection. And I just said, this is what this means to your dad. And on the part of incarnation, I used this quote that I love from someone much brighter than me. And he said, disguise is central to God's way of dealing with us human beings. Not because God is playing games with us, check this out, but because the God who is beyond our knowing makes himself known in the disguise of what we can know. I love that. The God who is beyond our knowing makes himself known in the disguise of things that we'll understand. The Christian word for this is revelation. In other words, illumination, revealing, opening your eyes. And the ultimate revelation, the ultimate epiphany, the ultimate eye opener came by incarnation. Jesus showed up and he opened our eyes. He flipped our paradigms upside down and he introduced to the world a whole new approach to life. And I'm telling you, this approach to life is the one thing that redeems everything. The incarnation is the gift. God is the master of disguises in order that we might see. And so again, it's the more we become incarnational as people. So think about this. Jesus came, he displayed his glory by being incarnate. So now let's package our thesis together as we're working on this, right? God in a bod, he stepped out of something and into something else. Got it? He stepped out of something and into something else. He was full of grace, full of truth, and that displayed his glory. And we now become carriers of that. Now let's go back to the Apostle Paul, who says, therefore, oh my goodness, this is so good. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Anyone thankful for that? Anyone thankful you're not who you used to be? My goodness. So thankful I'm not who I used to be. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ, now this is big, reconciled us to himself. Don't miss this because we live in a world where we just get really hung up on relational gaps. And you should know there is no relational gap in the entire world that can compare to the chasm that was between God and humanity. And Jesus showed up and in some brilliant fashion takes two pieces of wood in the form of a cross and he builds a bridge between us and our heavenly father. Come on, can we just celebrate how good our God is? He, he reconciles, he's a peacemaker, he's a bridge builder. And when you and I take on his image and likeliness, we become bridge builders, we become peacemakers. And he reconciled and watch how it ends. And he gave us, how is the church missing this? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I hear people all the time overwhelmed with anxiety and frantic. The world is so divided. And it's like, man, if only there was a group of people assigned to the ministry of reconciliation. Can you imagine the value they would add in the divided world? I mean, there's never been an opportunity greater than now for the church to fulfill the call upon itself to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation. We're bridge builders because we too have crossed a bridge that we weren't really worthy of crossing. And so we build bridges for others. So he goes on to say, 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Oh my goodness. Not counting their trespasses against them. See, here's what our message has become. You can be reconciled to God despite anything you've done, but you can't be reconciled to me because of what you've done. And then we get frustrated why the world thinks we're hypocrites. No, that's just not who we are. He says, not counting their trespasses against them. Reconciliation is who we are. And he has entrusted us. Man, his belief in us is so high. He has entrusted us the message of reconciliation. And he buttons it up like this saying, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ in the same way Jesus revealed God in the same way Jesus made an appeal to the world of his deity. Now God is making his appeal through us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. I love that statement. We are ambassadors of Christ. Now, to give us a working definition so we're all on the same page and lean in on this because this is where the sermon gets better. An accredited diplomat sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. Again, come with me. Incarnation. Step out of something, into something. Jesus was the first ambassador to the kingdom of God. Now you and I are ambassadors of Christ, that we are representatives of what? Heaven. So if you and I are ambassadors of Christ, representing Christ, representing the fullness of glory, representing eternal glory, well, then that makes the church the embassy of heaven. Church, lean in on me. Here's the deal. The church ought to be a glimpse of heaven. When, when people show up, they all ought to get a taste of heaven. When people bump into our lives, when people bump into our programs, our different initiatives, they should taste heaven because God gave us the message of reconciliation. Yet some Christians were told God gave us the message of recklessness. And that's a miss. This is such an opportunity for us to be like, let us shine in a world full of so much darkness. We are the embassy of heaven, which raises the question, what does the church of heaven look like. And here's the tragedy. I get to be a part of conversations with Christians all the time. And I get to be a part of conversations with pastors all around the country. And I listen to podcasts and I watch YouTube videos and I read blogs. And sometimes I get some emails as well. And uh, I also see some of this stuff in my own mirror. So no, this doesn't come with just a one-sided judgment. Uh, I see the faultiness in my own nature. But what happens is, is we get really hung up on pretentious preferences. And we divide the community of faith and the family of God over nonsense. And what breaks my heart is the fact that most American Christians would not like or not attend the church of heaven. When you look at what the church of heaven is gonna be like, most American Christians would be like, I'm out, I'm okay. That church is not for me. And I'm just gonna give you three, like unavoidable, we, we can't argue this, three attributes of the church of heaven that fly in the face of the American church. And here's my first question for you. Will Abraham be in heaven? Yeah, 
Will Noah be in heaven? How about Elijah? Will he be in heaven? Moses, will he be in heaven? Let's fast forward a little bit. Will the apostle Paul and Peter be in heaven? Let's keep it going. Will Mother Teresa, will Martin Luther, the great reformer, will John Calvin, will, will Billy Graham? The answer is yes. All these individuals throughout human history have anchored their faith to God. They're gonna be in heaven, which means the church of heaven will be multi-generational. And one of the grossest things that I've bumped into in the church, and it's largely because of leaders in my generation, is the vogue thing to do is to create a one-dimensional, one-generational congregation. And I'm just telling you, anytime a church, listen to me on this, anytime a church leans towards one generation over any other generation, it's a complete miss. It's a complete miss. And in our world, we find that with just three or four generations, it's hard for folks to get along. And the church we're gonna attend forever will have every generation in human history present. That is a wild section. <laughs> we're gonna get you a solo cup and just make you feel right at home. <laughs> and uh, it's gonna have every generation. It makes me think like, how bizarre are my kids going to appear in the cafeteria of heaven while talking to Noah? It's gonna be like, that's gonna be an interesting dynamic. Which means, again, if we're taking our cues from the incarnation, we're carriers of this glory. We step out of something and into something. We step out of something and into something. So here's the deal. If you're under the age of 30 and you're not in a relationship with individuals who are over the age of 60 who are not your grandparents, you are missing it. You're selling yourself short and you're missing it. And on the flip side, if you are over the age of 60 and you are not in a relationship with someone who is under the age of 30 who is not your grandchild, you're missing it. Because the church of heaven is multi-generational and I believe the church on earth in its fullness and just healthiness has every generation represented and the whole spectrum of life on display. That's when we shine. And so as a community of faith, we can never lean towards one generation over another. It's a miss. And my boys are, are playing baseball right now. And my, my son, Miles, is actually. And he plays for the Cubs. And what I love about this is their three coaches, these three gentlemen, uh, they don't have a son on the team and they don't have a grandson on the team. But they raise boys through this program from little league to high school to college baseball players. And last summer, they were at a wedding where they were reminiscing on the good old days and raising their boys on the ball diamond. And they decided, hey, we should do it again. And so these three men decided to give up their time to commit to coaching nine-year-old boys baseball. And uh, they've been amazing. And I love it because they're kind of those old school coaches that are imparting fundamentals into the next generation. And I just think we need that on a larger scale, more of that. And what I love about it is the ringleader in the group uh, goes to Northview, of course, right? And he just goes to our Noblesville campus, actually. So here we go, we're turning the corner. Church of Heaven is gonna be multi-generational. In addition to that, the church in heaven is going to be multicultural, which I think, again, is an opportunity for the church to shine. Yeah, amen. Because right now, I, I just, 
am so amazed by how poorly we are handling the race conversation in our culture. And what we've started doing is taking our cues from the loudest person, not the wisest person. And it's, it's really poor. And I, I think this is an opportunity for us to anchor ourselves to a bigger vision where it's like, yeah, we're not approaching it the way culture's subscribing. We are approaching it in a way that moves to such a bigger vision. And you should know that when we get to the church of heaven, if you're in a row of 20 people, you're the only American Christian. You're gonna be sitting next to someone from the Chinese church, the church of India, the church of Russia, the church of Thailand, the church of Uganda, Nigeria. You're, you're gonna be sitting next to people from all around the world and it's gonna be comical because we're all gonna have to explain to each other how we were approaching church here on earth. And just last week, Krista and I got to take our, our four children to Uganda and I know some of you, I appreciated your prayers. Many of you were uh, overly concerned. I got some people saying that, you know, thought it was a little reckless that we would take uh, four children to Northern Uganda where uh, the 1% of some of the poorest people in the world live in Uganda. And uh, I'm just super proud of my kids because um, they slept under mosquito nets with no clean water and no AC and they ate from the land and over campfires and in villages. It, it It was amazing. In fact, we got some pictures. This is us in Uganda. And uh, if you go to the next photo, uh, we got to just be a part of community life and hanging out at the well and serving lunch at school. Uh, we got some more photos of uh, just the, the faith of these people. It's amazing. When you go through it, you cannot help but notice their joy. And here's the, the great paradox. They have so little, yet so much joy. Yet when you survey the American landscape, we have so much yet so little joy. There's something about contentment that we need to look at. My kids, we threw them outside their comfort zone every time we could. They joined the church choir. Uh, They even helped dad preach. And here's what's amazing. My honorarium for speaking at this church, they gave me a chicken. (laughs) Is that amazing? So we chopped its head off and ate it that day. I'm kidding, we didn't do that. But here's what you should know. The Church of Heaven, uh, the Church of Uganda does a lot of dancing. And I'm just telling you, when you get to the Church of Heaven, there's gonna be some people in your row uh, who move a little bit more than we move in our church. And uh, we we did a a lot of dancing. And I I just think that is so beautiful. I was taught growing up all these wonderful songs like Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. it's a tragedy that we graduate from that song because some of you need to be reminded of that daily. Uh, God loves you. Despite your shortcomings, despite what you've been through, despite the pain you're enduring and the complications of your life and relationships, God loves you and and he's for you. Uh, They also taught me this other song growing up, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And when we anchor ourselves to a vision and we incrementally reverse engineer our future into our present and say, hey, we're moving towards the fullness of glory where we're gonna attend a church in heaven that is multicultural, it's beautiful. And as we round the corner, the church of heaven, uh uh-oh, is going to be (laughs) multi-denominational. Well, let's ask some obvious questions. Will some Baptist folks be there? Lutherans? Methodists? Presbyterians? How about those charismatic folks? Will they be there? Yeah, it's gonna be multi-denominational. And the list can go on and on, not to leave anyone out. And it makes me think of carrot cake, which feels like a hard shift, right? No clutch. (laughs) 
I love me some carrot cake. Wave at me if you like carrot cake. Yeah, my people, my people. Now here's the problem with me and carrot cake. Though I think it's delicious, for the longest time, the reason why I would order carrot cake is I thought it was healthier. I was convinced of this. And so literally, this is so embarrassing, but I'll just put myself out there maybe to help you out. I would be at dinner with friends and they would ask, anyone want dessert? And I'll take the German chocolate and I'll take the cheesecake. And inside I would swell up in a pride and be like, I'll do the, I'll do the carrot cake. Because in my mind, I thought it was healthier and I thought I was making the superior choice. All to find out that a carrot cake is a calorie bomb. It's a calorie bomb. And I think the whole idea there is learning, like you can still enjoy it because it's delicious. Just don't let it produce pride where you think you're superior. And I think we're gonna enter heaven and have a lot of carrot cake conversations. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, that, that part of your face was delightful. The fact that it came with a superior mindset and arrogance and pride, you kind of missed it. And so there's things in our faith that maybe are distinguishing marks from us and other believers, enjoy it, delight in the mystery of God, uh, but be mindful when it starts to produce a superiority complex where it c creates relational strife in the church family. And most Christians don't have their beliefs in order. And if you were to create a target, at the center you have your die for beliefs, your defend beliefs, and your disgust beliefs. And where we're getting it wrong is most Christians are putting things that belong in the disgust category in the die for category. And so we have to move beyond that and learn to appropriate our, our belief system. And I would just say, and there's not a magic number here, but if you have more than eight or 10 die for beliefs, uh, I would be shocked. And so it's just doing your own due diligence. What are the hills I'm willing to die on and the things I've anchored my soul to? And Jesus says this as we round the corner. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, that we resemble our heavenly Father when we operate in peaceful manners. And our world right now has a lot of peace breakers and we have a lot of peace fakers. People who have peace in their language but not peace in their life. You know, wolves in sheep's clothing, instigators, manipulators, agitators who are just disguising themselves as peacemakers. But the world needs peacemakers. So back to the Apostle Paul. Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling, we're called to future glory. We're called to a permanent membership in the church of heaven to walk worthy of the calling, which you have been called, check this out, with humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. You're gonna have to put up with your neighbor. Eager to maintain the unity. When it comes to unity within the family of God, are you eager to maintain it? He's just saying, that's how you walk worthy of the calling. You are eager to infuse health and unity and to be a peacemaker. And he goes on to say, in the spirit, in the bond of peace, gives us three more layers of clarity, humility, gentleness, and patience. And here's the deal. Scripture says where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. 
A good vision is restraining. It should hold you back in some areas. So if you're gonna live out humility, you're gonna have to hold back pride. If you're gonna live out gentleness, you're gonna have to hold back pressure. And if you're gonna live out patience, you're gonna have to hold back preferences because we are incarnational where we step out of something and into something else and we build bridges because the church of heaven is multi-generational. There is no ageism. It's multicultural. There is no racism. And it is multi-denominational. There is no legalism. So in closing, I'm gonna pray a prayer and not just any prayer. It's a prayer Jesus prayed about us. Here's what he says. My prayer is not for them alone, talking about the original apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me, that's all of us, through their message, that they may be one, Father, just as you and I, you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them, here it is again, the glory, I have given them this, that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought, oh my goodness, to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our unity is one of the greatest testimonies to the world around us. And there's never been a greater time for the church in America to rise up as the example. Because when the church is unified, God is glorified. It's glorified. Yet tragically, when the church is divided, God is avoided. And right now, the church at large is operating in such a way that non-believers look at it and they're like, ugh, why would I wanna be a part of that? But not us. Come on, church, not us. We commit to being a church family anchored to a vision where we are moving from glory to glory to glory, amen? And here's what's beautiful. This may be the one prayer that Jesus prays that we get to answer. All other prayers are us praying for God to answer us. And this may be the one time we get to answer God's prayer, which is such an opportunity. I mean, he's answered so many of my prayers. Anyone thankful for answered prayers? Yeah. And here we have an opportunity to say, man, we get the opportunity to answer the prayer of one who's answered so many prayers for us. Let us be one. Amen.